Hello there. Tiffany here, one of your co-hosts. I want to take a moment to apologize that I can't get my life together. You see, the first couple of moments of this episode, you're going to hear some background noise. That's me, not knowing how to work a microphone and move my hands at the same time. I want to apologize in advance. However, if you can get past that, we think you're going to like the rest of the episode. We do. So, Kristen, let's drop a beat. Hello there, and welcome back to Beats by Transplant Social Work. I'm Kristen. And I'm Tiffany, your host for the show. We're so glad you came back. And for those who are tuning in for the first time, check out episode one to learn more about who we are. But a brief summary, we are both certified clinical transplant social workers who specialize in all things heart transplant and LVAD, also known as left ventricular assist device. Our goal is to talk about all things transplant and LVAD from the social work perspective, bring the human elements back into the world of transplant for our fellow social workers and our patients. This podcast is intended for social workers that work in the field of transplant and or LVAD. If you're a patient pursuing a transplant or LVAD or a caregiver of a patient, we also welcome you here. Although we are transplant social workers, we're not your transplant social worker. We hope topics discussed here may lead you to further discussion with your own transplant social worker. This also applies to other transplant professionals who may stumble into our show. We do not take the place or attempt to override your transplant social worker, but provide perspective and hope this allows for more open conversations and collaborations with your direct social worker. So as you'll soon learn, we are both very passionate individuals, and although we may take the scenic route, we invite you along this journey with us. We are hopeful to make this a safe space to learn, be refueled, be heard, and feel understood. We want to challenge each other to be the best that we can for ourselves, for our patients, and we give you permission to challenge us. Awesome. So as per previous episode, we start with our vital check. So Tiffany, you're in the hot seat first. Dang, why do I always got to be in the hot seat first? (laughs) I don't know. It just kind of works out that way. (laughs) I unfortunately did not come up with a very clever scale. So I'm flying by the seat of my pants here a little bit. And um, so on a scale of, and I know that our audience can't see what I'm doing, but I'm, I'm very quickly (laughs) scanning my, my surroundings for something that might help me. Okay. On a scale of crappy costume jewelry that might be broken (laughs) to grandma's heirloom pearls, where is your, my life, your life? Uh I would say my life is in the middle ground. I'd say maybe a uh, Claire's. No, let's go up a notch. Francesca's uh, jewelry. Uh, maybe a little needs a little polishing, though. So like the middle ground. Middle ground. I like it. I like it. Yeah. So, okay. At least we're not like the, um, so, okay. Here in Texas, we have this street where everyone goes, um, in Houston to get like costume jewelry and stuff. And it's like a couple of bucks will get you basically a basket full of crap. Um, (laughs) so you're not quite there. Um, no, I'm not quite there. (laughs) Cool. Okay. Yeah. Just that, that middle, like it, it needs some polishing it's not the best of the best. But it's there. I could I could deal with it. Nice. Well, let me ask you. So the last time we talked, you were telling me that you had started running. You were getting into some more um, self-care wellness options. How's the running going for you in June? You know, it's really hot here. Very hot here in Phoenix in June. We're reaching triple digits on a regular basis. However, mm. I am still running. I am trying to hold myself accountable because now I also have put it out into the universe for listeners, however many we have. So it's keeping me accountable to run so that I can say and come back to my check-in and say, yeah, I actually am still running. So, and it feels good. It feels good. I'm running. I am adulting. I, uh, I just started some Invisalign, you know, going to the dentist like an adult. So I'm trying. Nice. Nice. That's awesome. Hashtag adulting. (laughs) I teach my patients. It's something we have to do. Uh, Little do they know, I struggle with it too. (laughs) 
I feel you there. I absolutely feel you there. But for a brief moment, you gave me just um, a little look into the shirt you're wearing. Um, so can you please share with the audience what your shirt says? Because I feel like we all need to appreciate it for a moment. All right. So my shirt says, I'm just a dope social worker with a hood playlist. And I'm going to turn around for you. <gasps> There's so a hope back. you can see the back. Every day I'm counseling. Heck yes. Every day I'm counseling and counseling. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. Yes. Yes. I thought it was fitting. I thought it was fitting for, for today. Oh, for sure. For sure. I feel like that's going to now be our official uh, shirt for the podcast. You know, if we just, we could put our logo right there. Mm. Goals. And then all. have it done. <laughs> Done. All right. Back to you, Kristen. Okay. Hot seat moment. Shoot. And I will be honest, I did not think of a, a very clever scale today either. So I too am looking around on a scale of a tattered notebook, old piece of paper. That's all you have to write your notes on to a leather bound golden edged journal. Mm. Where would you be? Um, so I would actually say that I'm, I'm, I'm a CVS receipt. <laughs> I'm not tattered. I'm, I'm giving plenty of room to write what I need down, write down what I need to write down, but I'm also kind of, uh, going with what I got right now. Uh, yeah. Hey, it's what you do, right? Yeah. So. At least you have the paper. Mm-hmm. Right. We got to look at silver linings. Correct. Correct. And um, I started a new, since we last talked, I started a new um, little goal for myself. It is going to sound very small, but for me, it's very, very big. Every morning, I am making my bed. Yeah, it's huge. You know what? Let me tell you a little story here okay. on that. <laughs> I sometimes give that task to my patients that are stuck in the hospital waiting. What? Or stuck in the hospital for a long period of time. I make them make their bed. And the reason I do that is because there's this awesome graduation YouTube on this military high rank officer that says you should start your day making your bed because at least that's one productive thing you've done for the day. Mm -hmm. And it sets the tone. So I applaud you. Thank you. Thank you. And I actually learned something. That is a wonderful thing to share with patients, especially when they've been in the hospital for an extremely long time. Uh -huh. That's good it, to it know. It normalizes. It humanizes. And it says, like, that's something you can do. It's in your control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. However long it takes you, too. Because trust me, mm -hmm. there have been some mornings when I went really dang slow making that bed. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, uh, Tiffany, do you want to share today's quote for us today? I'd love to. So success is the residual of planning. And by failing to prepare, you prepare to fail from one Mr. Benjamin Franklin. Good quote. Good quote. And it is perfect for today's topic. So as we discussed, we are planning to structure the series to follow along the psychosocial evaluation or the tool that social workers use to conduct their evaluation for a patient who needs a transplant or an LVAD. We want to break down the topics of the evaluation one by one and dig deeper into the importance of each topic. Now, we go into this knowing, look, there's loads of transplant social workers and LVAD social workers out there, and everyone's psychosocial evaluation may look a little different, but it's with the same goal in mind, right? Mm -hmm. Multiple ways up the mountain, the view from the top is the same. There you go. I like that. It's another that. nugget I give my patients. <laughs> well, it's a lot nicer than my, um, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Yeah, yeah. I've heard that one, but I, I yeah, I don't typically use that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. All right. So today's topic, we are going to talk about the transplant LVAD plan. We're going to dive deeper into each parts of that plan in later episodes, Yes, of course, you know us, or we'll get to know us. We like to go deep. Um, we're very detail-oriented. And so, you know, we want to make sure that we give each one its own kind of credit. But today, we're just going to do a overview of them and just really talk about making the connections of why we do what we do, why the plan is so important, and, you know, recognizing the interventions that we utilize while making this plan that sometimes we don't even realize. Mm -hmm, exactly. 
And so this can be very stressful for the patient. But Tiffany, you shared this little nugget with us. So I'll let you say it. Sure. So I always tell my patient when I first meet them, this is going to be a very stressful discussion. But I'd rather stress you out now and put that stress on you than when you have your new heart and put stress on your new heart. Mm-hmm. So I want, I always tell them that I want them to get everything worked out now so that when they get that transplant, they can focus on the beat of that heart. Oh, I love that so much. I, I know it sounds so corny, but <laughs> no, no, it doesn't sound corny at all. And um, because that's part of it, right? It's the magical mm-hmm. moment of hearing your new heartbeat. And mm-hmm. it is so much work and it is the road gets a lot harder before it gets easier. It does. It's those hurdles, you know, we talked about in the last episode and those, you know, sometimes patients will tell me in support group, the evaluation was the hardest part getting Mm -hmm. through and the preparation. It's like a precursor to the work that they're going to have to put in post, but that is when they can see the light, you know, Mm -hmm. it's that tunnel that they're in, in the pre that, um, am I going to make it through this tunnel? Am I going to make it out? Or that big, how does this even work? What does life look like after transplant? And so preparing for that and planning for it is hard because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's how am I going to figure this out? Well, but that's why social worker is important. And it leads to a lot of very tough conversations, not only with your social mm-hmm. worker, but with your family, your friends, your support team. You're having to really, we have, we have to ask the nosy questions. And Mm -hmm. so we have to ask that of the patient, but also their caregivers. And that leads to them having conversations with their support team too, about what it's going to look like post. Yeah. And I, you know, that brings it great into the first part of the transplant plan or LVAD plan is the caregiver plan. You know, um, a lot of centers are required to have a caregiver. Uh, my institution, we request a primary caregiver and a backup caregiver. I say request, like that's polite. We require <laughs> a primary and backup caregiver for both transplant and LVAD in my organ. That's probably one of the hardest parts of this plan. Yeah, you know, you're it's, absolutely right. It's That's where what you just said, Kristen, the, the difficult for the patient because they have to ask for help. They have to ask somebody, and as they say, that burden I don't want to burden someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like a lot of us as people in general, we are taught, we're taught generally how to offer help to others, but we're very rarely taught how to ask for help. And they're two sides to the same coin. I agree. I It's funny. I was just looking, I was, I'm reading a book right now, uh, a book that I have been putting off reading for, well, 10 years because the 10-year anniversary discount came out. Brene Brown's um, Imperfection. Yeah. Perfect Imperfections, yeah. So I kind of probably referenced that internally when I was thinking about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And she also mentions it in her book, Rising Strong. And so when you're done with um, The Gifts of Imperfection and um, have worked through her books, Rising Strong, she does a lot of work about asking for help and and just the the difficulty of that Mm -hmm. and the vulnerability (laughs) related to it. The vulnerability. That's why I've been putting it off. Uh, <laughs> I am not one that likes to be vulnerable, but I, I practice what you preach, right? And mm-hmm. so it's it's telling these patients and how I like to to phrase it to the patient when we're talking caregivers. This is this is a requirement, mm-hmm. okay? And by not asking them, you're not giving them an option. If you are not willing to talk to them, you're taking away that that privilege. Because sometimes they would want to. And if they find out later that you didn't ask them, sometimes it leads to some hurt feelings or some some upsetment because they think that this is something that they wanted to do, but you didn't even give them that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And some of the more like hard logistical pieces of that caregiver plan, you mentioned earlier that we usually, a lot of centers have to have a primary caregiver, a secondary caregiver, 24-7 care for a specific period of time. So for our center, it's 24-7 care for at least the first one to three months. And what I always tell my patients is, listen, as your social worker and part of your treatment team, it would not be fair for me to say, hey, listen, 30 days, 
that's when you need 24-7 care. Day 31, you're good no matter what. You're just going to be free to do whatever. And that's not realistic because everybody's recovery period is different. And so if a patient ends up having complications or has a difficult course of treatment, they may need those caregivers longer than expected. And so those logistical pieces are just as important as the emotional aspect of how difficult it can be to formulate that plan. So things like, are they able to take time off of work and what that looks like for their income? And do the caregivers that you've appointed or that the patient has appointed, what does their health look like? And if there's any health concerns for themselves? Well, you think about it. uh, I've, I've had patients that their caregiver is not able to lift a certain amount. And so Mm -hmm. when we think about the patient can't lift a certain requirement post LVAD or post transplant, who's going to do the lifting? You know, you think about the LVAD bag afterwards when they have to bring their controllers and their batteries and they're still not able to do that. Is the caregiver going to be able to carry the bags? Are they going to be able to, if there's a walker still get a walker out of the car? Mm-hmm. You know, kind of even walk the day. A lot of these transplant centers are pretty, pretty large. And so going from appointment to appointment, but also are they on medications? Mm-hmm. And if they are, how are they going to get their medications? Say the caregiver lives in a different state than where the patient's getting transplanted. Are they going to be able to have a pharmacy set up there? Are, are they going to be able to get their doctor to ship them? Do they have regular treatments themselves? Infusions. I've had a caregiver that had to get an infusion every month. And so it was kind of figuring out where are you going to able to get that here? Are you able to take on this role? Yeah. Because that's the other part is sometimes we have to tell a caregiver no. We have to say you you can't fulfill this role. There's other things that maybe you can do that moral support or mm-hmm. you could be in charge of grocery shopping or in charge of XYZ. But right. as far as that 24-7, because You mentioned too, when we talk about finances, sometimes if the caregiver is living with the patient, how does that, if they're both off work for Mm -hmm. up to three months, you know, the impact of financially. Exactly. And I had a patient whose caregiver, um, because of medical reasons, they were uh, not able to drive. And so they wanted so badly to be the caregiver and they were able to do certain parts of that caregiving role. For example, staying in the home with the patient and helping with medication administration, but given their own particular health concerns, were not able to drive. So having to find other caregivers that can jump in and take over that role while the patient is restricted from driving. And do they have a driver's license? I've had I've had caregivers that say I can drive, but I actually don't have a license. Yes. So what does that look like? You know, if you're get pulled over, is that going to make you late for an appointment? Is that going to make you get in trouble to where you have to show up at court, which might take away from you being able to be the caregiver? Right. So we have to ask those personal questions, even of the pa- the caregiver. And I tell the same thing to the caregiver. Look. We have to make sure we're doing what's best for your patient. They're our number one priority. So I apologize, but I'm going to ask you, and I ask them, you know, do you smoke? Mm-hmm. Do you drink? Do you use drugs? And I say, I'm not here to judge you. I'm not asking. I'm not going to get you in trouble, but can't be smoking around the patient. Mm-hmm. If they have traces of nicotine in their system, even if it's secondhand, that could impact their candidacy. That could impact their recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the recovery, the traces of, you know, just smoking around them. Uh, if you're using alcohol, if you're on a regular basis, again, going back to that driving or that clear-headedness, are you going to be able to take the notes? Are you going to be able to notice the subtle things, the changes for the patient? Mm-hmm. Well, and that also goes into the aspect of coping for a caregiver because there are a lot of times when this is much harder on the caregivers than it is the patient. And so, like, for example, um, the way that I explain it to my patients is, Okay, you have the luxury of being sedated for a good portion of when you're in the ICU and recovering. And there's going, we give you the good stuff after surgery, right? That, that, um, will make sure that you are kept comfortable. But that also means that you don't remember a lot of what happened in the ICU and in the hospital in general. And that's one of the reasons why a caregiver is so important is having someone that can think for you when you cannot think for yourself. And, The big piece of that is 
that is a very traumatizing stage and period of that journey for the caregiver. And if, let's say, they're a person who has a significant substance abuse history or that, but that goes into their coping, how are you yes. as the caregiver going to cope with that traumatizing piece of the journey? Well, and even going through it, right, they're helpless. They can't do anything when mm-hmm. the patient's in the hospital in that initial phases. They can't do anything to make the organ come faster. And so I like to tell them, you know, my institution, we're a smoke-free campus. Mm-hmm. So if you, I recognize that that nicotine is something that is a coping mechanism for you, perhaps, not saying it's healthy, but I recognize it. What are you going to do when you need to go smoke? Right. Or when you're here all day and it's just, you're just stressed and you're craving that tobacco, you're going to go all the way downstairs. You're going to go in your car. You're going to go off campus. So I talked to them about what can we do to help you? Is there, can you get on a patch or gum or toothpicks or candy, you know, so that we recognize that, that coping, it's going to be stressful. What can we do so that you don't get to a point where you, you're burnt out? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's acknowledging the reality that this is so difficult on our caregivers and they carry a huge burden that oftentimes does go unrecognized. And so, so it's not to ask the nosy questions to rule anyone out or to question their willingness to yeah. assist. Uh, we are we are not here to put your willingness under a microscope. More so is this burden more than your ca- ability or capacity to take on. Mm-hmm. But not questioning the willingness there. Exactly. And that's the the hard part. And that's why I so I vet each caregiver that's going to be part of the plan. Mm-hmm. Um primary and backup. And in fact, I need to make sure that vettings happen before I can approve that part of the plan. And so I also tell the patient when they're identifying the caregiver that I'll be doing that so that it also takes some of that stress off of them. So Mm -hmm. if they feel like they're burdening that caregiver, I can say, you have the conversation. If they say yes, I'll ask the questions. I'll find out. And if, if they really don't think they can do this, they get to tell me. So it doesn't it doesn't impact your relationship or That's, if it feels like it will, we can have that conversation. Exactly. That's, that's such a good way to put it too, because it, like you said, it's not adding some additional layer to their relationship that, that now they have to navigate through on top of all of this mess. Mm-hmm. Now I will say that's where the Cures Act has become a little difficult because if the patient's caregiver did tell me that, no, I actually can't do that. Uh, I have to be very delicate in the way that I, I phrase it in the chart mm. so that if the patient reads it, mm-hmm. you know, kind of putting that, that words, the words is so important and the way that I structure it, getting creative in that. But yes. it, it, yeah, the caregiver is such a, I always say that my, my patients are my rock stars. My caregivers are my superstars because it doesn't work without them. We do. We, I say that there is like we're giving you a baby and we're telling you, keep it alive. Yeah. And so I actually say the same thing, but then I say, but the crappy part about this is that you don't get a baby shower. <laughs> I, I say that at least the baby can tell you what it needs. <laughs> okay. So we have a little good, a little bad, you know. Either yeah. way, babies are really, really, really freaking hard. So <laughs> either way you, you look at it. But we talked about the caregiver plan. And then the next thing that we go over in our psychosocial assessment is if a relocation is necessary or uh, and or housing. So if the housing situation that the patient is leaving the hospital and going into, whether or not it's temporary or permanent, that sort of thing, we have to assess for that too. Yeah. Well, and I know there's a lot of destination centers out there. Um, and for those that may not know what a destination center is, it's a center that Sometimes people seek out to travel to directly because of um, their statistics or their program. And so you get a lot of patients from out of state or out of country even. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of centers will require the patient to be within a certain radius, either pre or post. So that adds another layer. If you're outside of the radius pre Mm -hmm. and you have to relocate for an unknown length of time or you have to come up with a travel plan of how you'll get there in time 
thinking, charter planes, things like that, all kind of goes into the financial plan, which is the next topic, but mm-hmm. uh, identifying how you're going to manage being two households potentially, also being away from everyone that you know. So if you are relocating to somewhere your rest of your family is is back home, mm-hmm. and there's that layer too, the additional emotional layer of handling that, learning the new grocery store, learning where you're going to go if you have to pick up, you know, some clothes while you're here, things like that of kind of a, it's like a move, but temporary. So what is your institution's um, relocation expectations? So we require the patient to be within an hour of the center. Post or pre? Post. Okay. Pre, we, pre is a work in progress. We want them to be within a four hour radius. Mm -hmm. Previously, we would have them relocate if they were outside of that. However, we've been working with patients allowing for um, flight plans. Mm. And so commercial flights are too difficult because of the unknown. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've all flown, right? And we've all gotten stuck in, well, maybe we all haven't. I'm speaking out of bitterness of a recent experience where I had to spend the night in an airport um, (laughs) in the great state of Texas, actually. Uh, Yeah. Welcome to Texas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But the, the weather. So if you're coming from a place that it snows, uh, could that delay the flights and then you delay the, the getting out your baggage, the getting all of that. So there are some charter flights out there that, surprisingly are somewhat affordable and sometimes we'll work with your insurance. Um, I'm actually working with one specifically right now that has been able to give me quotes pre. Mm. So they're able to kind of review patients' insurances and tell them what the kind of estimated cost might be. Tell them more importantly, door to door. Cause mm-hmm. that's the, not the flight time, but the door to door. And then I'm able to present that to the team, the surgeon specifically, and they say yay or nay. And that way they can stay where they currently reside. But again, everything comes with risk. So knowing that even that charter flight, even, you know, there's that something could happen there. There's a margin Um, for error with just about everything. Exactly. And it's important Mm -hmm. that we educate the patients on that and let them know. But yeah. How about you? What is your institution's requirements? Well, um, it's very similar. So post we, um, for VAD and heart and lung, we do uh, expect the patient and caregiver to both stay in the, (laughs) so this is, this is the fun part about where, where I live. I live, um, because I'm here in Houston, it is such a massive city. And so our requirements are that you have to live within one hour, but every patient always has the same argument, which I wholeheartedly agree with. You realize that with traffic, everywhere is an hour in Houston. Mm -hmm. And I say, yes, (laughs) I do (laughs) do very much realize that. So when I say an hour, I mean 60 minutes within a radius. And so if (laughs) like be reasonable with that, right? If you, you know, if, if the housing plan is, you know, 60 miles or more away, then it's very unlikely that it's going to take you an hour unless you're flying (laughs) down the freeway (laughs) to get here. So that's, uh, that's the post requirement. And there are some housing resources that we use that are about 45 to 50 minutes away from our institution. And um, they are medical housing resources. And so they're obviously within that radius, but still quite far. Tell me a little bit more about the housing resources when you say they're medical yeah, housing so resources. medical housing resources are something that we have um, that a patient and a caregiver is able to stay at for a temporary period of time. And so the way it looks and, and real quick, I'll finish up my, the requirements because it ties into the medical housing piece. And so um, pre transplant, 
not VAD, but just transplant, while you're, while you're listed for transplant, you need to live within a three-hour radius of the institution. And that's more, of course, and I'm sure it's the same for your institution, but that's because of that ischemic time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and for those of our listeners who are not familiar with ischemic time, we're not doctors, but the, uh, the non-medical explanation is that there's only a small window uh, for an organ to be transplanted. For heart, it's about four hours. And so we have to make sure that the patient is here in the hospital, prepped, ready to go within those four hours so that the surgery can go smoothly. Do you feel like I explained that? I do. Pretty well. Okay. Okay. Yep. (laughs) There, and well, not to get technical, but there's sometimes where there, there's longer ischemic times, but those are considered higher risk. So there's that high risk ischemic time. And that's the surgeon's determination of it too. But if your doctor comes to you and talks to you about that, ask them more about that. <laughs> Sometimes they'll present it to you in that manner. So ask questions. Always ask questions. For sure. And so um, for the medical housing piece, there are several organizations in the Houston area that um, are specific for transplant or and or chronic illness. And they... Uh, require you and a caregiver to be there and they are for short term only. Um, some of them look a little different. So for example, there's one that has like, a, it's a more communal housing situation where you have your own room, you have beds, a bathroom, a sink, but the kitchen laundry, all of that is in a communal space. Um, there's some that are organizations where churches in the local community all fund a fully furnished apartments. So that way you can actually live in a fully furnished apartment at a much lower cost than if you were to say, go get a lease or, you know, have to pay normal rent, right? Some of them are free. As you can imagine, those are the ones with the three, four, five, six month waiting list. <laughs> and then there are some that expect a daily rate or expect some sort of a cleaning fee. So they all kind of have a different way that they go about it. Um with that pre-transplant component, because of course you really don't know when that offer is going to be available to you for a match for your heart or lung or, or um, organ, then we have what we call medical nomads. Uh, and that is our oh-so-professional term, where um, because these medical housing organizations, a lot of them actually have a maximum and a minimum stay requirement. So, for example, some of them say, hey, we know that this is a temporary housing situation for you, and so you can only stay here for about 90 days, or you can mm-hmm. only stay here for six months, you know, something like that. Well, if you're waiting for transplant and that looks like a year, two years, three years, we have some... I have had in the past some patients where they've had to have standing applications with all the local housing associate um, organizations and would then stay their max day at one, go to the next one, stay their max day mm-hmm. at that one, go to the next one, and then just rotate around in a circle. And I know that those of you listening cannot see me, but I am very much using <laughs> my hands to explain <laughs> this. Um, but yes, they kind of bounce from place to place to place just with them, their caregiver and their suitcase. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And so talking about how taxing that can be financially mm-hmm. and emotionally. And so a lot of times those patients need and deserve a break from that and go home for just a little bit to actually see family decompress. And now when they go home, does your institution put them on status seven? Yes. And so um, status seven, meaning that you stay on the wait list, but you're technically inactive. So you wouldn't be able to receive any organ offers, but you are not delisted. There's a very, very clear difference there. But yes, um, especially if, for example, that person lives a very significant distance away from the from the program. So when I say significant, I'm talking another state or like you mentioned earlier, another country. And they're having to, you know, basically figure it out while they're here locally. Yeah. And I like to call it status seven uh, freeze tag. Ah, I like, like you're frozen that. in place mm-hmm. or leapfrog because you're frozen. People are jumping over you, but mm-hmm. you're not losing your wait time and, and things like that. We can talk about that a little bit in other episodes, um, but that a great resource for kind of looking up statuses would be, you know, checking out UNOS. Mm-hmm. You know, Google that. 
Uh, but it is very technical and can get very detailed. So again, we're going to tell you to go ahead and talk to your team about that. If you're a patient, talk to your team. If you're a uh, Another social worker and you need to learn more about statuses, talk to your nurse coordinators. They're a great resource for it. The good mm -hmm. news is we don't have to be the ones uh, to explain that status to the patient. It's good for us to know so that we can help them understand because it ties into all of this, you know. And so that's the question of if they are going home for that break, they're going to ask, how does that impact? Or that we need to tell them how that impacts um, their status. Yeah. The other thing to think about, though, with relocation is some insurances offer a relocation benefit. True. So it's called different things, uh, relocation benefit or travel and lodging benefits. They're very detailed and specific, though. So mm -hmm. some of them will have, say, a $10,000 lifetime. And so what that means is you don't get all the $10,000 at once. You can't pick a, an apartment that is going to exceed that. Because they'll also say, sure, you have this max benefit, but per day, we only pay up to 100, 150, mm -hmm. or we'll pay the caregiver. So we'll pay 50 when the caregiver is relocated. And once the patient gets out of the hospital, we'll get another 50. So you mm -hmm. have to be careful um, and, and plan. You have to be detail oriented in this and it, explaining it to the patients because otherwise they come at the backside of it and they're going to say, I have this huge bill. My insurance won't won't reimburse me. Help. Yeah. And so now you're you're playing it on the back end. When if you could, I know it seems like a lot of work, but if you can help them navigate that in the beginning, it allows them to plan even more. Mm -hmm. um, because there's going to be times that they're going to have to come back. I mean, once that initial time period of that first three months are required or two months, however your institution may do it or how the patient is recovering, they're going to come back for their appointments, and that, especially in that first year, kind of pretty frequently. Um, and so can they use that relocation benefit a little bit further um, mm -hmm. and be able to use it for those return trips? Do they cover food? Do they cover furniture? So some of them will say they'll cover the lease, but if you have to rent furniture, so if it's not a, a furnished apartment, they won't reimburse you for that furniture. Some will. So it's important to get the details of that travel and lodging benefit. Mm -hmm. And it's important to ask the right person. So if yes. you just call your insurance. And talk to, you know, Jane Doe, the first person that answers the phone, you're probably going to get a very different answer than if you talk to somebody at that department or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. And I'm glad that you brought that up because that was the other point that we wanted to go over or the third bullet point that we have to cover in a psychosocial assessment, which is finances. And so I get asked all the time from patients and family members saying, okay, but I have insurance. And so why do you have to talk to me about money? And why do oh, you need yes. to know my finances? And a lot of... um Understandably so, if, um, you know, this is not something that you have to go through unless you have to go through it. So a lot of people are very private about their finances. And that makes sense, especially in this day and age when identity theft is a very real thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think I've already gotten about four calls today about my car warranty and that my gas is going to get shut off in my house and just who knows what mayhem is going on with my finances at this point because of all the scam calls that I've gotten today. But my answer to that is, well, let's think about all the things that you need in order to be successful with a transplant that is not covered under insurance. So that's going to be the cost of gas, parking, medication co-pays. One of the things that comes up quite often post-transplant is um, you have health insurance, but you may not have dental insurance. Yes. And if you don't have dental insurance, but we know that as a transplant patient, poor dental health can lead to infections, we have mm -hmm. to stay on top of it. And if you don't have dental yeah. insurance, it's very expensive. Exactly. Even the, the evaluation phase, uh, dental clearance, if, if the mm. doctor is not able to do that, or if the doctor notices on the Panorex, there's something happening within your mouth. And Panorex is uh, a scan that they can do to, to take a deeper look into your mouth mm -hmm. um, and kind of see, is there anything happening in there? But 
they might send you to the dentist and say, your dentist needs to get a dental clearance. And if you don't have the dental insurance, that could be an additional fee as part of your evaluation Mm -hmm. for you. And, or if you need to have teeth then removed, it could be another cost. And so talk to your social workers about low income um, or sliding scale dental resources that might be available. A good one I like to put on that list that I give to patients is dental schools. Mm -hmm. A lot more affordable because they need to practice and they need to learn and they're supervised by actual professors, dental professors. I don't know if that's what they're called, but we're going to call them that right now. Um, But to be able to have a lower cost there. But it is, it's, it's planning for current and it's planning for the rest of your life. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's my nugget that I like to use with them is even if they come in and say, finances are no problem. I'm a multimillionaire. It's great. Are you willing to use your multi-millions? Because that's the other part. Just because you have it, mm-hmm. are you, you have to t- have a talk with yourself, with your, your spouse or your loved ones. Are you willing to use it for this? The transplant related expenses is what I like to call them. The above and beyonds of it. Because no, you don't have to be a millionaire to get a transplant. And that's the myth that people come in. I don't know how I'll ever be able to afford this. Only millionaires get transplanted. Exactly. Exactly. They can pay for it. Let me just also side note, you cannot pay for a transplant Mm -mm. in the United States of America. You should not be paying for a transplant on anywhere, black markets, all that. Just don't do it. Um, Right. It it makes for a good movie and that is it. It is fiction. Mm -hmm. Exactly. um, But you don't. You you do need to have insurance. That's going to be the key is by any way, shape, or form, maintaining your insurance. And so that also may look like, how are you going to keep your premiums covered if you pay for it through work? So that's something to consider when we're talking the financial plan. If you're going to be on FMLA, that doesn't pay in every state. Mm-hmm. And so how how does that work? And And that's another step to it of calling your insurance, calling your supervisor. Do you have to pay the premium on your own? Do you have to call it in, send it in by check? Do you have to do COBRA? What are the details of that so you can work that into your financial plan and ensure there's no termination throughout? You don't want to be in the hospital and getting that call that says, hey, your insurance is going to term, which has happened, friends. It has. And it makes for a lot of stress for everyone involved. Going back to it, we don't want to stress that new heart as much as we can help it. There's enough other stressors. Mm-hmm. So, and let's talk a little bit about medications with transplant because we know that on uh, that transplant patients have to be on immunosuppressant medications that are extremely expensive. And so, how do you prepare a patient for that cost of things? Yes. So, we actually have the patients register with a specialty pharmacy pre-transplant. Mm. to get their estimated costs. So we have found some some pretty good pharmacies out there that understand transplant. They actually have transplant liaisons mm. uh, there. And so we have a, a medication worksheet that we developed with our pharmacists. We work with our pharmacists to create this worksheet. Shout out to Pharmacy. Woo. They're also an under-recognized part of your transplant team sometimes. Oh, 100%. But they... Um, Give the the kind of common ones that you could be on post, and then you bring that to, well, you don't have to bring it in, but you call the specialty pharmacy, give them your insurance information. They'll do what's called a dummy run, and they give you an estimated out-of-pocket cost, as well as if there's going to be any prior authorizations, so Mm. that my nurse coordinators can start working on, okay, patient got a transplant, and I tell them, hey, itraconazole is going to be a prior auth. They'll start working on that day one, just so that it's there and it doesn't delay anything so when the smart. patient's ready for discharge. Because mm-hmm. we actually will have those medications ordered when we know the patient's going to discharge and we have their caregiver bring it into the hospital so that they can do their first pillbox in our hospital with mm-hmm. the nurse coordinator. And so knowing that in advance, because they are, I, I tell my patients um, per heart, if you do not have insurance, retail costs medications about seven to ten thousand dollars per month. Mm-hmm. Um, lung, I used to say it was ten to fourteen thousand dollars per month. So that's why it's important. And then they get that kind of shock, and mm-hmm. I have to give them a moment so that they'll hear my next statement. I always say, "But you have insurance." 
<laughs> right. So this is why it's important. Hang on a second. Yeah. yeah. No, and it's so true. That's, that's exactly what I say. Like, hey, if you had to get your checkbook out and write a check for one month of your medications post-transplant, you would be looking, and I say about $11,000. And the Mm -hmm. last time our financial coordinator team ran it, that was the number that we got just in general terms. But that's when you're maxed out on all medications. Mm -hmm. And a fun fact, or not fun fact, but hopefully fact people know, if you have Medicare at the time of your transplant, and this gets very technical, there's a lot of nuances in it, and it's also by organ, Mm -hmm. but... As an overview, if you have Medicare at the time of transplant and you receive your transplant from a certified Medicare institution, then your immunosuppressants will go under your Part B, as in boy, at Mm -hmm. 80%. And then if you have a supplement, that'll pick up the remaining 20%. If you do not have a supplement, you're responsible for that 20%. So even if Medicare is not your primary. So if you have a commercial insurance primary and Medicare secondary, it still falls under that 80% Part B. Mm-hmm. And we definitely... that's a CMS guideline too. That's so good to know. And we that's something we would definitely need to break down in another episode as well. Just those little nuances mm-hmm. of finances and why it is so important. Because, and we mentioned this in our last episode too. I mean, the reason that we're going over this in such detail is because transplant is not a cure. You uh, go into transplant a lot of times thinking that this is going to cure me and I'm going to feel so much better and I will get back to normal. And unfortunately, like you said earlier, well, unfortunately, but just the reality of it is that you have to plan not only for the transplant, but for the rest of your life. It is not a cure. It is a treatment. And that brings us, I think, into the next topic of planning for coping and adjustment. 100%. Yeah. (laughs) Don't you love how we've just naturally segued into every single topic? I love it. I love it. So good. It's like we planned it or something. I don't know. I know. No, this is just totally us spontaneous. (laughs) We're so disorganized. (laughs) By the way. I laugh so hard because we're so not. (laughs) We, We are very, both very organized. I even organized my candy drawer for um, my colleagues. <laughs> oh, I love that. No. So, uh, okay. Now, now we're taking the scenic route, but I have this cousin who I'm so jealous of, and I will be sending her this episode. So she knows that I mentioned her, but I, she with kids has organized her pantry in the most beautiful way humanly possible, where there's all these teeny tiny labels on all her acrylic containers. But not only that, she has figured out a way in her massive jar. And again, audience, you can't see, but I'm showing with my hands just how big this jar is. But she Pretty gets, big, y'all. It is. But she gets Oreos and she stacks them in a way where they're all, they wrap all the way around the barrier of the jar. And it is like the prettiest jar of cookies you have ever seen. And her kids know how to go in and get a cookie out without jacking up the whole jar. And it's okay. Beautiful. I'm going to need a picture. I'm going to need a picture of this. So I I may actually, the next time we do our vital check, I may just use like her jar of cookies as like the ultimate in I have my crap together. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely do that. Uh, I will not be that cookie jar. I'll be more of like the probably the Oreos that are half open and like spilled. Uh. <laughs> I'll be the Oreo crumbs that go into a blizzard at uh, Dairy Queen. Uh. That sounds so good. Anyway, sorry. Thanks for taking the detour, friends. But that's part of coping, right? We have to find ways to cope and we have to humanize the experience. And so bringing in the analogies and bringing in the um, kind of how we do things is part of the coping and adjustment process. A hundred percent. I just had a patient that I saw in the hospital. uh, And of course, we're not going into details, but this individual was, was struggling because of the whole, this is a treatment, not a cure, and was was struggling with being both a transplant recipient and living life. And there's some complications. And so feeling like it's living for the treatment. And mm-hmm. so we had to, to navigate that and do some tough talks and some kind of diving deeper and intervention planning for just how do we adjust? 
Exactly. Exactly. And something else that's very important to discuss is that a patient that's proceeding with the journey of transplant is at a higher risk for developing post-traumatic stress disorder. And Mm -hmm. so to go into this practice with a trauma-informed approach and being cognizant of that trauma piece of it, because being in the ICU setting alone is, excuse me, is traumatic. And Mm -hmm. then when you add the major adjustment and grieving over what you expected life to look like and that it's going to look very different now. There's, it's a whole onion that has to be peeled back. Mm-hmm. Or well, for and, my and, male patients, I like to say, I mean, most, most men and women, of course, but uh, most, most men can appreciate, you know, when you get the, go down into the, or go up into the attic and you get out the Christmas decorations and you see the big giant ball of Christmas lights that simultaneously got tangled up into a ball of mess on their own. And you have to meticulously yes. unpeel that. Mm-hmm. I like that analogy. And then see if they all work, right? Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's so true because that's that's transplant in a ball, uh, mm-hmm. really. You know, it's it's messy, it's chaotic. I I like to refer to transplant as a roller coaster. And mm-hmm. once you get that transplant, you're strapped in. You can't get off the ride once once it starts. And it goes up, it goes down. Sometimes it goes backwards, and it corkscrews. Mm. But it is a ride, and you're on it. And there are fun parts. And so it's those moments that are joyful and fun. It's, it's relishing them and remember them. When you're in the dark places, when you're in the parts that are the corkscrews and the backwards, it's remember those good times. Remember that moment by moment, the next moment's going to come. Mm-hmm. And talking about it, because there is, you, you mentioned that, you know, they think they have this kind of thought process of what it's going to be like and mm-hmm. life's so different. It's that expectation versus reality. You know, so many people go into transplant thinking that they're going to be cured mm-hmm. and then they're going to go back to quote normal. Mm-hmm. It's a new normal. And so I always make sure that I talk about that with the patients. It's new normal. And what happens when you don't get to go through that kind of aspect of it and the complications occur and things happen and that it's not what you were intending it to be. That's not what you expected it to be. And now that causes another layer of angst and another layer of depression. Absolutely. And that was really a great way to wrap up the episode, Tiffany. Like I, I just, <laughs> I love that. Like I really, I'm thankful that you shared it in that way and reframed it and wrapped it up so nicely to finish up our episode. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> and so um, our fun fact in transplant is, did you know that there are a limited number of states that will actually pay if they are employed and require family medical leave? I did not yeah, know that. I did. California is one of them. Okay. Uh, I don't know all of them. I should because I did a a thing I did a project on this that's in the works, but New Jersey I believe is another one. Texas so, is not. <laughs> Arizona is not. Mm. Florida is not. But there are some. So take a look at it. Not a lot, but it's pretty cool to know that they actually pay into it in those states. So like California, it's part of when you're working, you you're paying into for if you need that. It's not their full summary or their full wages, but it's something. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And then do we have any beatbox moments? So listeners, of course, this is our second episode, so we don't have any from our listening community, but please email us your beatbox moments. And that is the hooray, the wins in the world of transplant. What are you excited about that you want us to feature and shout out about on our show? Tiffany, do you have a beatbox moment? I do, actually. I'm so glad you asked. I had an amazing beatbox moment this week. That like just reminded me why we do the things that we do. Okay. Um, so I had a patient that I was working with for a long time pre. Mm-hmm. They were on an LVAD and there was a lot of struggles to get them to transplant. And when I first met this individual, they wouldn't even look at me in the eye. They didn't, they didn't talk. They didn't look at people in the eye. Mm-hmm. This person, by the end of it, was we got him listed for transplant. 
we got the person listed uh, and and transplanted. Mm. And this individual messaged me. We are a couple years post. And they said, Tiffany, I want to thank you for continuously being my support, my motivator. And I want to let you know I got a job. <gasps> That's awesome. I just, I almost was brought to tears because I, I didn't cry because I work out. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> it was just, I, this is why we do. I've had some really, really frustrating cases lately. Like just ugh, yeah. frustrating. Were there but tough? This is, this was, this is why we do it guys. And this is, and I shared it with all my docs because I also want to be like, this is why social work matters too, because taking that time with an individual that maybe would have been written off or yes. maybe would have been, uh, we don't, there's no way we're going to get that person to transplant and it doesn't work for everybody, but give some time. If you have, I know that, that we don't all have that ability and we don't all have that time or staffing, Yeah, but consider it because you could have this beatbox moment too. Oh, 100%. I love that so much. So, so much. Uh, so I have a beatbox moment. Um, so I'm kind of cheating. On my, is that allowed? Can I cheat on my beatbox moment? I mean, let's hear it first and I'll, I'll decide later. <laughs> okay. So technically, like, there's no real rules. So I guess I'm not cheating if there's no real rules. But I mean, it kind of is our, our show, so... Yeah, so I'm not cheating on myself. So, no. um, okay. So I'm cheating because... My beatbox moment is actually from a few months back, but I want to feature it as a, you know, as my beatbox moment for today. So, oh, totally not cheating. Okay, totally great. not cheating. Sweet. So a few months back, um, a post-transplant patient of mine, um, their daughter reached out and said, you know, um, seeing my dad's journey in transplant really impacted me. And I want to share how that, uh, that impact with the community. Is there something that I can do in my community that can help transplant patients that, um, or patients that are waiting for a transplant in the hospital now? And I thought about it and I was, um, and I, and I, re I responded back to her and I said, you know, actually there is something that is very needed. Uh, so as social workers, we help with, like you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, making your bed, ways to normalize that extended stay in the hospital, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I said, one of the things we do is we go to like the dollar store or we go to Walmart or wherever and we um, get anything that they can, anything that a patient can do in the hospital that's not just sitting and watching TV for hours and hours and hours on end. So crossword puzzles, journals, books, no, 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 right? Um, if, if you are interested in doing something with your community that would help us get those things, that would be tremendous. Right. So it didn't, she said, oh yeah, you know, you got it. I, I will be on top of it and I will reach back out to you when I have those things available. And then, and I didn't really think much of it. I thought, you know, okay, we'll get a few little things here and there. We ended up getting over 400 items in ah. boxes and boxes and boxes of stuff. Ah, and that's so awesome. It was the coolest thing ever. Ever, ever. That's so cool. And so, I mean, we have items we are going to be able to give to patients in the hospital probably for the rest of the year. I mean, we, um, and so I asked, um, you know, my teammates to say, hey, if you have a patient that you give some of these items to, can you just kind of, if, if they say anything in response to receiving some of these items, can we just start to gather those little, you know, mementos and that sort of thing so I can get them back to the community that donated these? And just the response from the people that have received these items, it, it never ceases to warm my heart. Every single time mm. I give one of these items out and then I get a response back, I'm like, this is exactly why we go into social work. It's not just helping a patient on the individual basis. It's engaging the community. It's engaging your organization. It's every layer that was impacted by this act of kindness. So that's you my goosebumps. You gave me goosebumps on that one. Ah. It just, it, the community, it's, it is such a community. And ah, that's cool. Mm -hmm. Y'all, this has been... Uh, so much fun. And I really hope that you guys 
give us some information to beatbox with. I, I want to hear, we want to hear your good stories. We want to hear stories where you need a little bit of encouragement. Do you have nuggets? Anything. We want to engage with you guys. So please, please check out our, our show notes that have our contact information. Reach out to us. Check us on social media once we get there. <laughs> Yes, that is a, that is a goal of ours as well. <laughs> yes, definitely check out the show notes. It has a it'll have our contact information, website, that sort of thing, and email. Uh, so we can't wait to hear from you. So thanks so much, and we will see you next time. All right, guys, thanks for listening. We're Kristen and Tiffany. Working in transplant takes a team. We hear you. And we see you. We're in this together and together we are stronger. Be sure to check out our show notes for more information found in today's episode. Take a look at our website for additional resources and links that may have been mentioned in today's episode. You can also find us on Instagram and our website, which is found in the show notes. Bye now. Bye-bye. This podcast solely reflects the individual opinions, positions, and or viewpoints taken by its hosts and guests and does not reflect or represent any official opinions positions, and or viewpoints of the Society for Transplant Social Workers Incorporated, its board of directors, and or membership.